and welcome to the Cyclone Slant Podcast. I am Travis Hines, joined by Ian Murphy. We had a little bit of a holiday and schedule hiatus to the Ames Tribune Cyclone Slant, but here we are again, uh, gracing your earbuds and your car stereos and however else you uh, listen to this fine podcast. Ian, how are you? I'm well, how are you? I'm good. Did you enjoy your Cyclone Slant hi- hiatus or were you missing it dearly? I missed it dearly. That's, that's the right answer. So, I guess the, the main topic uh, du jour of the week, of the month, is Iowa State basketball. They're coming off back-to-back losses. Uh, they just had a stretch here with a 1-2 and two stretch with a, lo- a win at Oklahoma State, and then back-to-back losses to TCU and Kansas. Uh, TCU coming on the road, Kansas obviously Monday at home. Um, there's a lot to parse out here, and I think let's start with the granular and work our way out to the big picture. Um, anything from what you saw, what stood out to you in terms of uh, play against Kansas on Monday? Uh, the most eye-catching thing to me was how quickly uh, Josh, Josh Jackson blew by Deontay Burton on Kansas's first possession there. Um, I mean, that was one thing that stood out, and I really just said, wow, that was not great interior defense by the Cyclones. Yeah, um, so that one play is what stood out to you, that first play of the game, the rest uh, of the 39 really minutes and 50 seconds to hell with it? It really did, um, and obviously the flurry mm. late in the game, but then... Josh Jackson only made two other shots the rest, I, of, the, the, rest of the game. Though. And I I understand that, but <laughs> that was a kind of Deontay Burton play that people have been driven nuts about this season. All right, well then let's use that as a way to talk about two different things. First, that was a layup, which is a two-point shot which is uh, something Iowa State has shown, uh, frankly, a total inability to defend against right now. Um, Teams over the last three games, and if you read my column Tuesday, um, these numbers will be familiar to you, but I think we can, you know, dive into it a little bit more in this form. Over the last three games, they're allowing 63% inside the arc. The national average is 49%. The worst team in the country gives up 60%. So giving up 63%, even if it's a smaller sample size of three games, is a utter catastrophe. If you want to zoom out a little bit more in the Big 12, they're giving up, I believe, I don't have the Ken Palm in front of me, it's 58 or 59%. While just short of a catastrophe, that is a major disaster. That is very, very bad. Um, so why is that happening? One, size is going to be the number one thing. But Iowa State has had months to figure out their size issues. They knew they were going to be small all year. Now, it's been a worse situation than I think they hoped or envisioned, considering Merle Holden went from nine-game starter to four-game bench warmer. But this is still, you have to construct your defense and execute your defense in a way where you're literally not the worst at something in the country if you want to be an NCAA tournament team. And right now, Iowa State's failing to do that. And I think there's a lot of reasons why. Size is one of them. Communication is the other. And I, frankly, scheme has got to be taken into account here, too, from the coaching staff. You know, what Iowa State's doing to combat being small is doubling the post. But when you double the post and you're small, and we've talked about this before, specifically after the Gonzaga game, is that when you bring help either from the weak side or from up top, and you're coming at with a six foot three guard or a six foot two guard, it's incredibly easy for a post player to identify that double, not only to identify that the double's coming, but where it's coming from and who it's leaving open. 
And that's causing a lot of problems for Iowa State because if they're coming with help from a second post defender, that's leaving a guy either wide open on the block or wide open for a putback layup off an offensive rebound. That happened a ton against Kansas when Landon Lucas wasn't catching the ball two feet from the basket and, and laying it in. Which brings to another point of allowing post players to establish position deep inside. If you allow that to happen, you're going to get scored on. Now, when you're six foot four, Deontay Burton, it's really hard not to allow a guy to get deep post position. But Deontay Burton is very strong. He's got to try. He's got to make it work. Maybe not in every possession, but enough where it's going to affect your points per possession output. And that's not happening right now. He's not putting in early work. Daryl Bowie, taller than Deontay Burton, not as strong, but still you got to put in your work early and deny people setting up on the block, and that's what's happening right now. And when you couple all of that with not having a rim protector, that's why you're seeing this just total ineffectual defense in terms of keeping people away from the rim. And it's just you have to figure out a way to do that, or whatever you do elsewhere will not matter. If you allow teams to shoot... Over 60% on two-point shots, you are going to lose much more often than you are going to win. Uh, yeah, I think you said it pretty well there. Um, they, they can't continue to do that. They can't allow teams to get set up inside. Um, what do you think offensively, how have they looked the last couple of games? Stilted. I mean, it, that hasn't been great. The one time in the last two games where they've looked you know, solid offensively is when Monte Morris went bonkers. And that's the thing that got lost on uh, Monday night's game is that Monte Morris had a not only was his stat line superb outside the freakish three turnovers that happened in the first 12 minutes of the game and then he went the next what 28 without a turnover um, was that he was great late a couple he hit two really clutch threes uh, defended pretty well I thought Frank Mason got the better of him from the defensive standpoint early in the game but that Morris did a much better job buckling down uh, later in the game. And that's not an easy matchup. You asked me to talk about offense, I'm talking about defense again. Uh, it's, a much, it's a difficult matchup for Morris because Mason is stronger and quicker. Um, and so it's just really hard to stay in front of him when you've got that you know that one-two punch. But I thought Morris, as the game wore on, did a much better job despite playing 40 minutes. But back to the offensive end, S- Iowa State has a huge shot selection problem. They're taking a ton of mid-range jump shots. And Deontay Burton's shot selection is as questionable as it's ever been. And I don't want to rag on Deontay Burton because I do think he's trying to do make right choices and help his team win. But he is a guy, like others before him, like a Abdul Nader comes to mind or a Will Clyburn, that sometimes takes tough shots. And when you take tough shots, you're inviting variance into your life. And when you're a jump shooter or a basketball player, variance is not good because it doesn't reward or punish like consistency does. Consistency, if you continue to do something that doesn't work and it doesn't work, you know it doesn't work. Mm -hmm. If you consistently do something and it works, you know it works. When you're taking high-variance shots, sometimes you're going to make them and sometimes you're going to miss them. And you're probably going to miss more than you're going to make. But they're going to have a few games where you make a lot of them just from variance and having the talent that Deontay Burton has. So there is the reward that happens frequently enough to keep you thinking you can make those shots consistently. But you make them infrequently enough to really hurt your team. 
And that's a bad thing. And it's a, it's a trap that Deontay Burton falls into at times that, uh, that dozens and hundreds and thousands of players have fallen into. And, that, and that's why people talk about good Deontay and bad Deontay. And I push back against that because it's really, is Deontay making shots or is he not making shots? In terms of the public perception of good and bad Deontay. What good and bad Deontay really is, is good decision maker, ball distributor. That's good Deontay. Bad Deontay is shot selection and a lack of ball movement. And that is what really stilts Iowa State's offense. That along with... They're not running, as I think that they probably should. They've fallen outside the top 200 in adjusted tempo on Kempom. Um, you know, they're not playing in, in incredibly slow, but when was the last time you saw him got a, get a fast-break layup that didn't, wasn't the direct result of a steal uh, and, a, and a run out? Like, they don't have four-on-threes. They don't have three-on-twos. They don't have four-on-fours, you know, whether it comes on a rebound or even after a, a made shot. You know, that was a thing that two years ago Iowa State was great at. Even after a made shot, sometimes they could get layups because the ball went through the net, it was to Morris, and they hit a rim runner. And they're missing that rim runner. They're missing the sense of urgency, I think, out of Morris sometimes. He doesn't look as uh, want, wanting to push the ball himself as he has in the past. And I don't know that, because like, he's really the, the only great ball handler on the team. Before, if Niang got a rebound or his teammate could outlet to Niang, you felt good about him pushing it. Naz Long and Matt Thomas, you don't feel as great about. They're not as great of ball handlers and distributors. They can do it at times, but I think if you ask them to navigate 75 feet of floor and make good decisions and distribute and not turn the ball over, you're, again, you're inviting variance. Sometimes it's going to work and sometimes it's not. And I think that's a big piece of what's going on. And if you watch the the television broadcast on Monday, you heard Fran Fraschilla talk a lot about a lack of movement off the ball. And you know that's frankly, unless Prome is telling them to do it and they're not doing it, which is a whole other coaching issue, then it, it's got to be on Prome to institute some things that move a defense from side to side or invert the offense or cr- just create some pressure and some decision-making out of a defense that's not currently occurring. Well, I think basketball, is, it's fair to say, is not an isolation game anymore. You have to have drives and kicks and guys moving all the time. And... That's another thing that stuck out to me during that game was it seemed like three or four dribbles, a pass at the top of the key, another three or four dribbles, and then a contested 18-footer. And that's obviously not the offense that you want to run if you're Iowa State. Yeah, I mean, when we talk about isolation, isolation is the symptom of the disease because you can run good offense out of isolations. Mm -hmm. But what happens too often, which we talked about earlier, out of isolation, you run into taking mid-range jump shots or taking contested shots at the rim. Because when we talk about ISO not being good offense, we talk about it from an efficiency standpoint because so often for most players it creates inefficient shots, that 17-foot jump shot, that 14-foot leaner, that you know contested shot at the rim in front of a 7-footer. So if you can get efficient shots out of ISO, great, run it. That's not the case right now. and I don't think the only person really adept at running ISO is Burton because he's a mismatch. But he's not a good enough decision maker consistently for that to be good offense. The only person that you can also bring into the conversation is Morris because his mid-range game is good enough where you at least should probably look at it. And I don't have the numbers to really parse out what he shoots from the mid-range, but I bet it's close enough to 50% that you feel okay but not great about it. And you know his problem is that he's not as explosive enough 
despite Monday's tip dunk, which he's not getting enough credit for, is that he doesn't have the explosiveness and the quickness of a guy like a, a Frank Mason or a De'Aaron Fox, and he's not the shooter like Lonzo Ball at UCLA, and he's not the athlete that Dennis Smith Jr. is at NC State. Um, so it, it just him running ISO you know, presents its own problems, even if he's a fantastic decision maker. And so that's that's kind of what Iowa State's juggling with on the offensive end of the on the floor, and I think that the coaching staff is aware of these uh, problems. And the one thing, you know, being around Steve Prohm now for a year and a half, one of the things I feel like I'm learning about Prohm, his personality and coaching style, is that he's very um, patient. I think when you come from a mid-major like Murray State, it de-emphasizes the regular season so much because he had a season right before he came to Iowa State where they – think won 28 games in a row and went 30-2 and two and still didn't make the NCAA tournament because they lost in their conference tournament. So I think his whole mindset is less about how do we dethrone Kansas in the Big 12. It's how do we make this work by March 5th going into the Big 12 tournament, going into the, to the NCAA tournament. That's not to say he's punting the regular season or anything like that because they still have to get an at-large bid and they're still trying to win games with – every fiber of their being. I just think in terms of tinkering, Prohm doesn't want to make any big changes because if you make big changes, it's hard to make more than one or two. If you make a small tinker here or a small tinker there, you can you can play and experiment a little bit more without upending the entire operation while still working towards building and building and building to reaching that, that pinnacle that they want to be in March. Now that's not going to appease Iowa State fans in January, and I understand that. But And it's also putting a lot of pressure on Prohm to not only make sure that they make the tournament, but for them to have success when they get there. Because if you're peaking and you lose to UAB, which is what happened two years ago to Iowa State, that was a team that was playing great basketball, and they had a bad morning in Louisville, and all of a sudden you're done. When you finish, like look at last year. Let's say that I like. That was an ideal prom. You get in, you have a good seed, but you're a little disappointing as a sixth place finish, and you make the Sweet 16. That's great. That's a fun, cool year. What if you finish sixth in the Big Ten or Big 12, and then you go out and lose to an Iona, which a lot of people were picking Iowa State to lose to Iona. I wasn't one of them, but what happens then? Now you're in big trouble because now people are you underachieved or perceived to have underachieved in the regular season, and you certainly underachieved against seed expectation in the NCAA tournament. Putting a lot of pressure on yourself there. Um, that's something you know. Probably should ask Steve about and see if my if that's accurate. But that's my impression, a little bit of just the way that he thinks and the way that he builds his team. And I think it's certainly a valid, viable, uh, smart way to go about it. I don't think it's the only way to go about it, but that's the impression that I get. And I think that's a fair point. I think the general fans in this state of the, the two college teams here are going to freak out when you lose a game that is on your schedule that UI is this is our big game and but I do think that point about being at Murray State where the postseason matters so much more and winning your conference tournament and peaking in March versus riding that wave all the way through the season is a very key point because you have a bigger margin of error when you're in the Big 12 and you're playing these top 10 top 15 teams every night just about Um, so I think that's a good thing to keep in mind. All right, I think we've uh, gone granular enough, and I asked for Twitter questions, and most of them are bigger picture. So we're going to 
move over to that side of the ledger and that segment of the podcast. So we start from John Kirchner. How high is the ceiling for the NCAA basketball team this season? Where do you see us finishing in conference and postseason play? Let's start with the ceiling. I guess in terms of play, the ceiling is pretty high. We've seen them go toe-to-toe with Kansas and Gonzaga and Baylor and Cincinnati. Um, So just in terms of what level of play can they reach like when they're playing their best, I think it's probably that high. You know, if you get that four-guard thing churning and getting it moving and, you know, it's aggressive and it allows you to get out in transition and you can fly around defensively and hedge ball screens and trap ball screens and create some turnovers, you know, you're talking about being able to play with top 10 teams. You know, the problem when we flex into the second part of the question of where do you finish in the conference or postseason is that, yeah, they can reach those levels, but it's not super consistent and it hasn't been reliable nor has it actually proven to be able to win games against these top-level teams. They've been right there, but like I wrote in my column, just because you're the only thing that being right there proves is that you can be right there. It doesn't prove you can beat those teams. Maybe you, you can have that theory. You can say, we're this close. I think we can get X amount better and win. That's certainly viable, but it doesn't prove that. It just maybe suggests it. Um, so when you're talking about where do they finish in conference play, you know, I got to look at the teams ahead of them. I mean, obviously the top three are pretty well, whichever order you want to put them in, are solidified in that top three with Kansas, Baylor, and West Virginia. Is TCU better than Iowa State? I don't know. Maybe. Is Oklahoma State? No, they're 0-5. They're going to finish ahead of them. But what about Texas Tech? I don't know. You know, these are the things. So I think four is the ceiling. I don't think they go further than six. Um I just I think that's pretty unlikely when you look at how weak Texas is, how weak Oklahoma is, and I think you know obviously Oklahoma State starting out 0 and five you know really hurts them. So I think they finish in the top six. If the if that top six means nine and nine, I think that means NCAA tournament. If it means eight and ten, maybe NCAA tournament, but you're going to have a very unenjoyable selection Sunday. I um, mean, however far they get in the postseason, I'm that's. So matchup dependent, I don't even want to guess. But, um, you know, the way you look at it today, I think 9-9 nine and nine is very much in play. And I think you feel, you know, maybe not great because you're not going to be a top 6 or 7 seed. Uh, but I think you feel pretty confident going into that Sunday uh, that you're going to get an NCAA tournament uh, bid, which is really, you know, what you're playing for. Uh, Tyler Rich asked, what would you do with the last three basketball scholarships? It's a good question. I think... Uh, I would be in heavy pursuit of an immediately eligible big, which is incredibly difficult. Everybody wants one, but I would try very hard for one. Um, beyond that, I would be scouring for a junior college big. And if I couldn't get one there, I'm, I'm probably not taking a flyer on a freshman big. Maybe if the right guy comes into play, but between Solomon Young and Cameron Lard, I'm feeling pretty good about my young bigs. I want to I want to inject some age and experience into that front court next year, especially because I think when you talk about Ray Casango, I think he'll be a junior. Um, I, yeah, one year at JUCO, one year at Tennessee, so junior. I want somebody in that age group that I can count on because I think Casango is a little bit of a question mark. I think they're hopeful he can be a contributor, but I don't think that's a guarantee. Um, so I, you have three left. I would try to at least get two bigs. Maybe that that's probably not 
possible. If I could get one immediately eligible big, whether that that I think can contribute, first I'd start with out with a grad transfer. If I couldn't do that, I'd try to get a junior college player, just because I think that's usually where you can find the best player. Um, if you can get a junior college guy that's better than an immediate, immediately eligible grad transfer, go for that. Um, beyond that, I think then maybe you do best player available uh, for that second scholarship. And for the third, I think I would probably leave open for a mid-year transfer next year. Um, that, that's becoming an increasingly uh, valuable piece and an increasingly uh, more robust marketplace, uh, to use an economic term, uh, that I think you want to be prepared uh, for that. And it'll be interesting to see because I, obviously Iowa State got high-level transfer after high-level transfer under the previous regime. And uh, obviously by the, the play of Merle Holden and the inconsistencies of Daryl Bowie, um, we haven't seen that from this staff. That's not to say that they can't do it, but we haven't seen it uh, from those two. And obviously, you know, Cassango remains a, a question mark, and maybe he'll be the guy where you go, okay, these guys are going to be able to churn in uh, the high-level transfer. But we'll, right now that remains to be seen, and I think that's something for, for Iowa State fans really to keep an eye on. You got an opinion on that, Ian? Uh, I would say same thing. Go for the bigs. Sell out. Yeah, sell a farm if you got it. Yeah, I mean, if you can get a, a prep big that you think will make a difference, go for it. But I think we're seeing that that's so the likelihood of that is so small that you just got to hope that either you got an in with a, a junior college or an immediately eligible, uh, just because that that seems to be the more likelier path of having an impact player. Speaking of which, Cub Cyclone wants to know how can Lard possibly not help? at least rebound or defend. It's impossible for it to get any worse. So Cubs Cyclone, half of your name had a very good year. You should be more positive. Uh, the other half is doing okay. Uh, but here's the lard deal. How, how could he not help? Because he might not be better than who they have. He's a freshman who has played sparingly the last year or so. He, remember, he did not play high school basketball his senior year. He played a little bit at a prep school in Houston, and if you know anything about these prep schools, their schedules can be like less than great. Playing um, other prep schools, playing junior colleges of all levels. So you don't know how much he's played in the last year. Um, and then just beyond that, like I think Solomon Young's probably pretty good. I think you know Merle Holden, for whatever his limitations, he's played five years of college basketball. So it, it's possible that he's not as good day one stepping cold onto campus without any type of preparation that all these players got from June until today of playing with the team, of practicing with the team, of learning the plays, of being in the strength and conditioning, of building relationships with the coaching staff. I think it's, it's very reasonable to assume that he's just not as good. The other thing, let's say is, let's say he, in three weeks, he can catch up. So we're in mid-February, and all of a sudden it's, okay, he's either our first or our second big guy. Let's say he's their third big guy. Do you play a third big guy? Do you burn a red shirt for a third big guy? Let's say he's first. Do you burn a red shirt of a player you hope to have for four years for a month? Maybe the answer is yes, if it can make win you a game in the NCAA tournament or secure you in the, uh, into the NCAA tournament. But is that fair if you're Steve Prome to ask of a kid to use an entire year of eligibility for a month? Is that fair for him who, sure, I'm sure he wants to help his new teammates win. Sure, I'm, I'm, I would imagine he wants to get on the floor. But do you, as a coach, have a further responsibility to say it's best for your personal, academic, 
and basketball future and development for you just to say, we're not playing you this year, even if you make a difference, because it's not fair to you. You know, you're obviously just by definition, you know, academics were an issue to get into school. Is it best for you to eliminate the basketball portion and as much as we can? You're still going to practice. You're still going to uh, do the strength and conditioning. You're going to get individual workouts. But take out the, the game component, maybe the travel component, and then certainly the public scrutiny component and just have you focus on, you know, things in Sukup and things in the classroom. And that's, I think, I think fans don't want to hear because you guys are totally well within your rights to want to win now and want to win big. But it's also incumbent upon Steve Prohm to have a bigger picture outlook, not only for his program, but for his players. And I think that that is going to be taken into consideration. Um, and if you all get on the same page and decide, hey, we think it, it, it won't hurt him in the long term, it's going to help him and us in the short term and decide to play him, okay, fine. But then... You know, you are opening yourself up to criticism on the back end. I mean, you're opening yourself to criticism, whatever decision you make from one faction and another. But I think the first, the first question is, would it matter? And the second question is, would it be worth it? I think it'd be. Unwise. And third question is, is it fair? I think it'd be unwise, and I don't think it's fair for a lot of the reasons you just touched on. Most of those guys have been here since June, or, I mean, you look at Solomon Young's already got the full semester plus of working and then you come in and say we're going to throw Cameron Lard in that's not fair to Lard just to open him up to that kind of scrutiny on an individual level I don't think it's fair to the rest of the team to say oh we were missing this guy that comes in and all of a sudden we the Cyclones rattle off eight or nine games or whatever but I just don't think it would be a wise decision to burn that redshirt year take a whole year of eligibility when he could have potentially an impact big man for four years down the road. Yeah, I mean, I'm, the, the fairness thing for the team is interesting because I, I don't really, like, is it fair if the kid comes in and is better than everybody? Like, tough crap. Like, yeah. But the flip side is, is also, like, what if he is good enough to come in? Is that fair to the team and to those six seniors not to play him? Mm-hmm. Does Prome or Lard have a obligation or a duty or whatever to those players to make you know their senior year as successful as possible but you're also by doing that you're potentially scuttling what would be large senior year obviously he would still potentially have a senior year but it would be a year earlier than you thought it would be so there's there's a lot to unpack here and I think you have to to recognize that as a fan and, and think about it instead of well can he score one basket or get one more rebound um, and that, that's kind of where I'm at on it um let's see. Pete, not going to try to pronounce your last name, Pete, wants to know, does Prome have a countdown clock until Deontay Burton leaves his gym for good? No. I think Prome recognizes that uh, Deontay Burton's very important for this team, and more importantly, I think they have a, a relatively strong relationship. I don't get that there's a lot of contention there, even if Deontay... Because I, I don't think Deontay's hard to coach. I think he's probably hard to reach in terms of changing some habits. It's not like they're clashing on the practice floor every day. I'm, I'm sure Deontay is a challenge to coach just from a, you know, there's so much talent there that doesn't consistently show itself, but I don't think he's a challenge in terms of coachability. And Steve said that publicly. I think everybody knows what you're getting with Deontay Burton on the floor is what you're going to get with him. All right, what's going on on the women's side of the Sukup Basketball Complex? On the women's side, they are 10-7. and 7. 
Uh, they have Baylor tonight at 7 o'clock, about two hours from now. Uh, that is going to be a very tough game. They do not. Iowa State does not have a true post player, in my opinion. They have Meredith Burkhall and they have Heather Bowie, who are both capable of playing in the post, but you line them up against Baylor 6'7", 6'4", 6'3", post players. That is not a good matchup for Iowa State. A 1-5 start to the Big 12 season, a win over Kansas. Kansas is not very good. They have been in all five games that they've lost. They've had a lead in all five games they lost. They just have had five to ten minute stretches, and I wrote this today, that they haven't shot the ball well, and they've been a step or two late defensively. And the other team will go on a run, take the lead, and not give it back up. So by the time most people listen to this, the Baylor game will either be going on or be over. Um, so let's not spend too much time or any really talking about that. But assuming they don't pull, beat the number two team in the country on their gym, they're looking at a one and six start. I would imagine that does not bode very well for NCAA tournament chances. What is the overall picture of this team? Is it simple as they're, they don't perform for a run here or a run there in every game, or is there some other critical flaw uh, where that's just manifesting itself and they're not able to paper over it for 40 minutes a game? I think it's that they don't perform in that run because, you look, they were up on Mississippi State at the half. They led Texas. They led Oklahoma State. They've led every team that they've lost to, and those are teams that are bigger, have the bigger name recruits coming in, have the bigger – I mean, Texas is a historically good women's basketball program. Mississippi State is now the number four team. They were number six when Iowa State played them at Hilton. So I think it's just those stretch runs where they need to figure something out, find a spark off the bench maybe or something that is an answer to what the other team can do. Is it a matter of they can only really put three players on the floor at a time that really matter to a defense in terms of scoring the basketball? Is that a piece of it? I think that is certainly a piece of it. Shauna Johnson, Jada Buckley, Bridget Carlton are going to score the bulk of the points. Uh, they will. I mean, the rest of the season was true in the non-conference. It's been true so far. Bridget Carlton had 30 points this weekend. But it's just they need to find that other option. Uh, Meredith Burkhall is capable of scoring not necessarily in the post, but on jump shots, and she does some interesting stuff. But she's not that reliable fourth option, and they haven't found that. Uh, Coach Bill Fennelly is still mixing the starting lineup. Emily Durr got her first start of the season uh, against TCU this weekend, and I haven't seen what they're going to do tonight, but I'd imagine they'll keep mixing it around until they find something that clicks and they can say, we're going to stick with this the rest of the season. All right, cool. Well, we're glad to be back on the Cyclone Slant podcast. Hopefully you didn't hate us being back too much. If you sat through 30-some-odd minutes of this, i got to imagine uh, it was at least tolerable. Um, Ian, hopefully it was okay for you. I enjoyed it. Good. Um, So anyway, until next time, uh, Iowa State, obviously, tonight against Baylor. The men play Saturday at Oklahoma. Uh, We will be back next week to talk about that and a lot more.